this notion that billionaires are going to save us is um, just <laughs> nonsense, frankly. I think uh, despite what they tell us, the billionaires are not the heroes in this story. And uh, you know, while philanthropy has been leveraged to do a lot of good in this world and, and is addressing a lot of critical problems, I think that uh, we need to actually have political solutions and economic solutions. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. In episode 22, we have Teva Shinitsky with us, and Teva's a TEDx speaker. She's the co-chair of Blueprint to End Hunger, CEO of Metro Caring in Denver. And in her TEDx speech on ending poverty, she talks about kind of an ambitious agenda um, of talking about how we, you know, solving those kind of issues are a, a complex process of trial and error. And she sees Poverty is a complex issue that's acted on by complex systems, and hopefully she's going to tell us a little bit about that today. Tiva, can you tell us about yourself and a little bit about what you do? Sure thing. So I have been in the uh, third sector or the nonprofit sector now for a couple of decades, uh, working to build more equity into our system and to build uh, a system, a, a structure, an economy, a uh, community that works for all of us and where we all can thrive and reach our full potential. Uh, I'm currently at Metro Caring where our mission is to meet people's immediate needs uh, for nutritious food while building a movement to address hunger at its root. And uh, some of our kind of core principles at Metro Caring are that we work with our community, not for or, our, or to our community, um, that we use a strengths-based approach uh, and that we're really committed to addressing the root causes of hunger uh, in addition to helping folks get through the day-to-day -day struggle of, of the symptoms of hunger. And uh, we approach everything we do with an anti-oppressive lens. Uh, we believe and, and know that when whole groups of people fare worse than other groups, that the problem is structural. It's, it's not an individual moral failure or a, a failure to hustle enough. It's, it's something wrong with our structures. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a great intro. So I, before we go into some of those things, um, we like to start with defining some terms. Mm -hmm. So this was going to be our first episode of season two, uh, but we had to postpone this because, uh, you know, some of us, some of us got ill, uh, but here we are, we're back, we're, <laughs> we're together, which is great. So I think this is the fourth episode of season two, but we're still all about mindful wealth. And I want to define that really quick. Um, we talk about mindful wealth sort of as a true wealth or a true life success. Uh, I've heard it referred to in lots of different ways, well-being, et cetera. How would you define true wealth, uh, both for yourself and for the community you serve? I would define true wealth as, as a holistic concept, uh, that it incorporates both material and spiritual well-being, that it, it recognizes our interconnectedness. Uh, throughout the globe, there's a lot of countries that uh, instead of just focusing on GDP as a measure of, of how well uh, they're doing as a country, 
have uh, measures like well-being indexes or a happiness index that they hold up, uh, you know, pretty high in their in their national policymaking and rhetoric. Uh, when you look at where the U.S. ranks in that, we rank we rank in the middle. But I, I think that that's a really um, kind of interesting concept and, and, and definition, and that's one that uh, I would uh, I would agree with. Where do you think it comes from? Like, where where do we source this well being? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, during COVID, a lot of us were reminded that we are interconnected. And uh, I think that true wealth does require us to get back to our interconnectedness. Uh, there's a concept called Sonder, and uh, it's about thinking and imagining uh, each person you see and interact with and the, the full story of, of their lives, um, thinking about the fact that they have family and they have elders and they may have kids and they have maybe, you know, what is their home like? What is their job like? How is their, how are their relationships? How, how rich are those? And that ability to recognize the full humanity in each other uh, so that, um, you know, you can make decisions that are for the good of the whole and, and not just kind of um, in a really narrow uh, tunnel vision way. Um, and I think that uh, in this country, in the U.S., you know, we're a rich country. We're, uh, you know, a monumentally productive economy and we produce, you know, vast amounts of, of money and products. Uh, but I would I would argue that in many ways we're not truly wealthy because, uh, you know, we have let a powerful few and the way we live uh, to divide us by race and place and political tribe. and too many people are just like struggling to, to, to work um, and, you know, full-time or more to like make ends meet. And uh, I think that if we're going to get to true wealth, we have to work on um, recognizing the full humanity in all of us and setting aside our identities as consumers to re-engage our identities as neighbors and friends and citizens and come together to safeguard our human rights, our, our health, our housing, our health care. And uh, these shouldn't be partisan or political issues. And I, I think that a lot of times we let what divides us tear us down and make us less wealthy as a nation. Um, but that if we can come together and maintain that empathy and that compassion, um, we can come together to be innovative and to look for evidence-based policies and to continuously improve uh, and uh, get to a place where we do build wealth. And, and you'll see that even here in my answer, I'm talking in a structural way because I really think that, that these things are so connected. I don't think that uh, a person can have wealth in isolation on their own. I think it's within a web of humanity and within the structures of our economy and our political framework. Um, I read a thing in the New York Times business uh, recently about how people were becoming meaner and uh, they were having to train customer service representatives on how to deal with like these like barrages of hostility. And uh, I think that that to me is an indication of, our, of, of a poverty we have as, as a nation. And, and that one is a more spiritual poverty, but it leads to, I think, the material poverty that we have amongst us and the extreme inequities. Just a quick, just a quick follow-up. I know that Terry has something to ask, but uh, I want to just where did you, or have you just recently run across that term, Sonder? Because I, I read it recently from somebody and I'm wondering if we're reading the same stuff. Uh, there's actually a coffee shop in the Denver Metro area called Sonder. And uh, 
it's, I think since that coffee shop opened, people have been like, what is this word? And so we've been talking about it at work for a year or two years uh, as a, as a concept that, that we really, you know, enjoy and get behind. And that, that I think is, uh, that, that describes a lot of what we're trying to do at Metro Caring. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great word. Sorry, Terry. Yeah, no, don't apologize. That was Teva, uh, Teva, I'm going to get it right, Teva. <laughs> um, that was, that was like a really a great, a great paragraph. <laughs> um, so basically like I come from the real estate field and when I watched your TEDx speech, um, you know, I really was very interested in what you guys did with the Blocks of Hope community. And, you know, I work more kind of with on the investor side. And so, you know, we're dealing with all this, these issues of affordable housing um, and gentrification and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm just curious to hear from somebody who's really like worked on the other end of it and tried to say, okay, how can one approach that kind of issue in a different way? Blocks of Hope was uh, an experiment where, we took a 20 by 20 block community uh, and tried to apply a place-based uh, anti-poverty set of, of initiatives um, to work. And uh, this was a really promising practice when we started this work 15 years ago. And it involved a few different kinds of interventions. It involved really uh, making sure that the folks in that community had the services and the resources and the connections to meet their basic needs day to day. Uh, and it involved uh, a lot of community organizing work. Um, organizing is leadership development work. It's, it's citizen engagement work. Uh, it was about identifying the natural leaders and training them as citizen activists and uh, leaders to impact policy. And that work is still going really strong in that community. And uh, we built a, a successful, um, robust, uh, diverse, multi-generational, multi-racial coalition of, of folks, of leaders who living in that community um, who are working together uh, to build a community that worked for them. Uh, they um, made a lot of great progress and uh, some of that progress was localized. Uh, they were, made some improvements in their schools, they made some improvements in their parks and in the neighborhood infrastructure. Uh, and um, unfortunately, what we learned is that that place-based focus was, was difficult um, because with those improvements then comes gentrification. And, uh, the cost of housing went up, uh, light rail went in, uh, displacement went up, and a lot of those leaders we'd been working with and, and uh, you know, had been kind of bringing along their community efforts were priced out of that neighborhood and were forced out. Uh, so really, like, the lesson we learned there was that, you know, the tactics were, were really strong in terms of the community leadership development and working with the community rather than to the community or for the community. Uh, but that without a really significant investment into community development work and um, much deeper uh, level of, of investments in affordable housing and really bringing those investments to scale to preserve uh, affordability in the neighborhood, uh, place-based work you know, is, is difficult because you, know, you create those improvements that then attract higher income folks into that neighborhood and displace the folks that actually organized to improve the community itself. So, um, you know, I think it was, it was one of those things, I think in the intro you said, uh, continuously improving and that's a complex problem. And we learned some, some things went well with that approach and other things we learned uh, don't work well in isolation. Huh. Isn't that, that is so interesting. So, I mean, if, if I could just sort of like scratch in there a little bit more, like, so 
what then would you recommend today? Like, do you think that those kind of place-based initiatives are, that energy is better placed somewhere else? Or is there still, like, would there be another way to rejig things that would make that effective? I think that as a society, we really need to go to scale on our investments into housing affordability. Uh, We, you know, when we started this work uh, at, at Blocks of Hope, there was five neighborhoods in our metro area that were considered still affordable. Uh, at this point, I don't think any of those neighborhoods remain uh, affordable to, to the median income earner. So I think that uh, you know, as we're thinking about poverty, you know, like I, I, as I said in the TED talk and you quoted me on, you know, my own words coming back to me here, it's, it's a complex problem, right? Like we're, we're working within an ecosystem where Um, You can't just pull one lever in isolation. There is no silver bullet. Uh, We really have to make sure that we're considering um, all of the pieces of the system together and how they all interact. Um, It's like a mobile, you know, if you touch one thing, it can set the whole thing to spinning. And so I guess, you know, the pieces that I think we took away from there that were successful and that we're bringing to our approach at Metro Caring uh, were around really continuing to develop and strengthen those leaders and community uh, to help them to advance their political agenda. So, you know, at Metro Caring, we asked, you know, what are the root causes of hunger, you know, from your perspective? And they identified five issues. And the five issues that our community identified, you know, a lot of people would say, why, why is that a hunger organization's business? But affordable housing was right up there. Lack of a livable wage, uh, the health and health-related issues, transportation and health and, um, I mean, I'm sorry, the social safety net and public benefit programs and some of the inadequacies around that. And we heard a lot of stories about elders who were living on social security benefits that were far from adequate. Um, I met a woman who was bringing home $749 a month and she had to have two roommates in her late seventies to be able to afford rent in Denver. So I think that the, the kind of the moral of the story is that you know, once again, there is no just scalable silver bullet that we can just replicate in community across community. We need to address things together and we need to listen to community about what they say are the pressures um, and what are the policies that we need to work for for them. I, I want, them. I, thank you. I, I, I want to, um, wow, there's, I, there's, there's something I want to actually get into. I don't know if it's your, your area of expertise or, or if you have additional thoughts on it. But this idea, I read about it this morning and it's been on my mind for years. Uh, I work with Berkeley Food and Housing Project here in Berkeley, and it's this idea of affordable housing. Uh, And in Berkeley now we have tons and tons more than we've ever seen encampments and people who can live in a tent here, but, and and they go to work, right? Uh, And then they come back to their tent and then they go to work and they come back to their tent because they can't, they literally can't afford it. Um, And from an economics perspective, one of the things I read a lot about is, you know, we have hampered the building of housing for 50, 60, 80 years so much that we just simply don't have enough units. And so that obviously drives the price of every unit up. um, And it sort of really creates wealth for us who have owned a home for 20 years and the people who own the homes for 50 years and boosts our wealth but it makes the entry point for the younger uh, or people who you know, are recovering from something, uh, uh, some kind of financial challenge makes it really hard for them. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about housing policy, but I'm just curious if you if you have any thoughts on housing policy and the things we can do to actually get more stuff built. Yeah, well, I mean, surprisingly, I, I do give a lot of thought to housing policy uh, because it does so much impact uh, the folks in our community and, and their ability to put food on the table. If you're paying 70, 80, 90% of your income for rent, you know, you can't afford to pay for food and medicine and all the other things in your life. So um, Jerusalem Dempsey's actually has done some really great work on some of the regulatory barriers and zoning barriers uh, that get in the way of us building more housing stock. And uh, I would recommend for, for folks to look into her work. Uh, she uh, has a, a number of policy recommendations that I think we need to address. Uh, NIMBY is another problem, the not in my backyard mentality. Uh, you know, when we're talking about things like here in Denver, in my neighborhood, we're talking about uh, ADUs and uh, changing our zoning to allow for folks to put in ADUs. And that's one way that can help with improving uh, affordability and increasing density. Um, you know, but there's those folks that just don't want change and they resist it and they want to hold on to their own individual property value rather than seeing kind of the greater good in that scenario. Uh, so I would say that those are all um, some of the things I would look at. I also think we need to invest way more heavily in public housing and to remove the stigma around public housing. In most of the developed world, a much more sizable percentage of the housing stock is publicly held. Uh, because it's a different frame of reference. There's just this notion that housing is a human right. It's not about housing as a commodity or housing as an investment. And so if 30% of the housing stock is public housing and it's mixed income housing, there's not this same kind of stigma around, oh, well, that's for those people. It's for everybody. It's like some of the most desirable um, housing, you know, for instance, in, in downtown, you know, Stockholm is, is public housing and there's wait lists for 20, 30 years to get into some of those buildings uh, because they're really nice flats and really desirable historic neighborhoods. Uh, and I think that we need to consider, you know, some different frames of, of really investing way more deeply into public housing. Um, to use the Sweden example again, uh, when they had a wave of immigration in the 70s, they realized that they had a massive shortfall of housing coming down the line. And uh, you know, they're a country of about 5 million people, which is about the size of Colorado. We're about five and a half, six million. We're kind of a growing population here. Uh, and they said, you know, we need to invest really heavily in affordable housing. And they did a million unit project. And they built a million units of transit-oriented housing across Sweden uh, on transit for, for their future wave of, of population coming in through immigration for they built it so that workers could get to jobs and they built it you know so that it would it would last and go to scale and I just think that that scale is something we just we have a really hard time thinking to scale in this country and we we just get overwhelmed by it and we we say no no we can't ever do that it's it's impossible rather than thinking outside of the box for okay well how can we make it possible? Um, you know, some of the things I've been thinking about is how do we leverage a lot of our existing resources? So at Metro Caring, we have a two-story building right now and a surface parking lot, and we own our building. And we're sitting on a lot that is zoned mixed use up to eight floors. So we at Metro Caring are going to do a development to build housing because we've heard from our community that housing costs are a huge driver 
of hunger and, and we've seen displacement happening very actively in our community. And our community is a historic community. We're right, right on the edge of a historic black community um, that is just getting gutted by, by gentrification. And so we wanna do our part to, to try to preserve some affordability for, for households and families and elders in our community. So we're turning over that resource to build housing. And I, I think, you know, what about every kind of, you know, mission related values aligned organization that has, you know, assets of real estate to do that because the, the cost of land is a huge barrier to entry. Now, what can we do to incentivize churches, synagogues, temples, libraries, rec centers? You know, some of this land is already publicly held. Like how can we think outside the box? What about school districts? The school districts in Denver, we're struggling with declining enrollment because kids are having to move to the suburbs because they can't afford to live in the city anymore. And so if, if family housing could be built on some of the, the school district housing or teacher housing, we had a strike in Denver. It was nationally publicized a couple of years ago because teachers couldn't afford to live in Denver. And so I think that if we start to think outside the box about how rather than why not, uh, we might be able to do a lot more housing in, in this country. Um, last thing I'll say about housing policy is that we need to simplify the financing mechanisms. Uh, we do a lot of it through the low-income housing tax credits. Um, those tax credits are really complex. And so it's expensive for folks to get into the field and to figure out how to do a tax credit application. It's competitive. It's dif they're difficult to get. And frankly, they favor the status quo and they favor, they favor folks, investors with money who can, who can make money off of the system and off of just a little bit of housing being built rather than just really opening up the doors for how can we invest way more heavily into affordable housing. And, and I think, you know, even when we think about affordable housing, I guess, you know, back to the NIMBY thing, I just think we also need to think about this isn't for those people. This isn't for people who we other in our imaginations. This is for us. Yeah, we had this. Uh, we had someone on a little while ago that talked about how we had to. Um, yeah. This is a before, right? Uh, uh, no, uh, this was no Rajan. It was Rajan. Rajan. Yeah, Rajan. Yeah. Getting out of this idea of looking at the other and just go and engage the other and become part of the other, right? That was that was one of the things that he actually challenged us to do. I, I just did some quick math. I Terry, I cut you off. I apologize. Um, the, Sweden builds a million for 5 million people, right? Five, 6 million people, yeah. a million units. That's the equivalent in the US is 60 million units, right? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a huge, that's an enormous, not, not impossible, but enormous number of units that we could do to do the same thing. I just, just wanted to share my, you know, my math skills there. Go ahead, Terry, what's your question? I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, it's, it's actually interesting because I'm, I'm actually like just starting to research precisely that thing. My, my uh, book called Mindful Landlord is coming out actually this week. Um, and as I'm thinking about this, the second book that I want to write, which is precisely about this issue kind of, of, of affordable housing, like I've read a bunch of stuff about it. And like, so part of the thing is it's an urban planning issue because like you said, that there's a not in my backyard aspect, but then there's also like, I know I live in Montreal. And so there's this issue right now with, um, you know, the mayor just nixed us building up. So like Montreal is quite a dense city. It's more of a European model. And like wherever there's two-story housing, like one could add another third or second floor. And so that would, you know, 
solve a certain amount of affordability issues. And then there's also like, I think public housing is one thing, but I think there's also ways of incentivizing like the private sector to do stuff. And, you know, again, I, I'm not from the US, so I don't observe necessarily how your government functions, but for sure where I'm from, like leaving things to the government often ends up being very bureaucratic. Like I'm from the French part of Canada. And so like, if you can imagine French bureaucracy, like that's kind of the situation <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of, kind of the situation that we live in. Um, and so they've come up with a, a way of, uh, we have like a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac kind of a thing called the CMHC, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And so they've now come up with like a, an affordability mortgage. So basically like if you guarantee that 50% of your units will remain affordable for the duration of your financing, you're then able to get a very low interest rate and they will provide you like basically mortgage insurance. They'll even let you put the mortgage term on 50 years instead of 25. Um, so I, you know, I'm not familiar with how your system works, but I think there is a way of finding these kind of like win, win, win solutions where you use the maybe the efficiency of like private energy, you, you help the communities. And then maybe you also, you know, kind of combine those things. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's a question of having more people talk about that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I think that uh, to some extent that's true. And, and I think that's what the low income housing tax credits try to do is, is to incentivize private developers to build low, low income housing. Uh, I just think, um, when you look at the, the percentage of housing stock that is privately held in the US compared to much of the world, you know, it's overwhelmingly private, privately held. So when I you know, talk about the need to invest more heavily into nonprofit held and uh, publicly held housing, it, it, is, it is not at the expense of privately held. It's that I do think though that we need to have uh, we just need more housing. And so, yes, the private sector needs to build more affordable housing, but also I think each sector needs to go to scale. And I think that um, we, need to, we need to just invest heavily across the board in, in solutions for, for going to scale in, in each of those uh, segments of the market. The other piece I would say is that we know that everybody does best in mixed income communities. And so, mm -hmm you know, the more we can do to incentivize developers of all types to build mixed income housing, I think the better off we'll do as, as society. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I also manage a lot of low income housing, like which is ends up being low income housing. And I think one aspect is financial, but there's another aspect of, I don't know, how can I say this in, in kind of a politically correct way, but like when you end up in like low income areas there, it's associated with a lot of social problems. And, you know, I am not a social worker, but I end up kind of dealing with that on the housing side and saying, okay, like, what do I do when there's a lot of people who are uh, substance abusing? What do I do when there's a lot of people who have trouble maintaining uh, like a sanitary environment because maybe they're facing mental health challenges and that like, the more you spread that out, the less of an issue it is. But I feel like it's still, that's still like a complex thing to deal with. Yes. And rates of a lot of those things. Uh, I think that a lot of the, the challenges of, um, you know, housing that where it's, it's really concentrated in communities that have been neglected or have been oppressed by our systems for a long time is that you, you consecrate you concentrate the uh, side effects of those yeah. oppressions. And so I think, 
you know, mixed income housing has been found that, you know, when, when you spread, uh, you know, communities and you diversify neighborhoods uh, that in fact, um, you know, it has an effect of, of improving educational attainment, um, you know, lowering incarceration rates. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it helps with issues of over-policing or racialized policing practices because you have neighbors out there saying, what are you doing to John? Um, you know, it's, it just really increases um, kind of the well-being of everybody in that neighborhood. Um, you know, that said, I think that, uh, you know, as, as somebody who is a manager for, for uh, low-income housing um, properties, I think you're experiencing what a lot of us in the third sector and the nonprofit sector uh, have been experiencing for a lot of time, long time, which is trying to, with, with few resources and inadequate tools, um, handle the symptoms of, of the mess that we've yeah. created yeah. by neglecting root causes and structural inequities. And if we, if we had you know, better um, mental health parity and behavioral health parity in our healthcare systems and better access of care, uh, you know, some of those issues, you know, that we also hear our police forces are, are now, you know, feeling like social workers, our teachers are feeling like social workers. All of that is a symptom of the fact that we aren't dealing with the actual problems. And the more we can deal with the actual problems together, uh, you know, the, the, the less that those of us that don't have the resources uh, to do it will be, will be left holding the bag. Yeah. Man, Teva, that is like so 100% on the mark. Like it happens to me twice a week that I say to someone I'm, but I'm not a social worker. You know what I mean? And it's, it's not that there's not a will that's there. It's that I don't have the training and it's, it's not my skills and I don't have the resources to deal with that stuff. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Like when I have a tenant who, you know, there's, they, they've gotten some kind of like a pest infestation because they're a hoarder and then we need to have it cleaned up. There's, they are contaminating the entire building with that. And I, I'm trying to solve that problem. It's as if like, I don't have the resources at my disposal. I can't clean the unit myself. I can't force my way in there. And so like the only tool I have is basically an eviction proceeding. But at the same time, like you don't want to do that because you're aware that it's a vulnerable person. Person, but like you just don't have there's not the resources to address the issue right no it's terrible you've been given a hammer and you've been told to go build a house and uh you know <laughs> you, need, you need a lot more equipment than just your hammer uh yeah. and you know evictions are just a really a blunt force mechanism that we have to turn to too often because we don't have the systems uh you know to really support residents adequately yeah do you have do any advice? Do you have any advice? I don't want to get too far off track, but like, I mean, do you have it? Do you have any advice? Like, what should I do? <laughs> no, I mean, how can, how could one approach that? Like in this poor resource environment, how could one approach issues like that in a way that's socially constructive? Well, so one of the things that I um, did at the early part of my career was actually organize tenant, tenant right groups. Um, and so I went into uh, various, um, mostly public housing buildings, and uh, just got to know people and identified who were the natural leaders in that community, and then uh, trained them up in you know, leadership skills and helped them to set up resident councils. And the resident councils themselves created those structures to support one another and bring in the resources that they needed. Uh, to make sure that their neighbors were taken care of and that they were taken care of. And they've, they set up all sorts of great partnerships with mental health centers and 
community gardens and just, um, you know, there was a one building that brought in some, you know, uh, supportive animals once a week to come and just have, you know, petting sessions with the, the tenants downstairs. Um, and, and that was in an elder home. You know, there's all sorts of uh, creative ideas that residents will come up with. And so I think when you have a strengths-based approach and when you don't assume that you have to be the one to, to solve mm -hmm. it on your own, um, but leverage the resources that are there in your building. You've got leaders, I'm sure. I'm sure you've got the person who who bakes for people when they're when they're not well. I'm sure you've got the person who drives people to medical procedures and to the food pantry. Um, you know, find out who those people are and and organize them and give them resources and give you know give them support and they will come up with all sorts of great solutions and ideas to support their community. Do, do you think that it's this is that that process of finding the people in the community that that are already doing the work and then giving them more resources to do better work? Do you think that's been hobbled by a pandemic? People aren't as connected as they were, or do you think it's been enha uh, uh, enhanced positively? I think it's some of both. Uh, you know, I, I hear stories every day about uh, you know people who you know at Metro Caring when we were when we were in the midst of the pandemic, we moved to a drive-through food distribution and delivery model. And we had people who lived in, um, you know, communities bringing in their neighbors and also saying things like, you know, and my neighbor down the hall can't come in because she's not feeling well, or she has an a, you know, immunocompromised or whatever. And they would pick up, you know, boxes of, of food and, and um, hygiene products for their neighbors. So I think that, um, it did happen. I think that there was less social connection and, and, and some more social isolation. And so, you know, we definitely, uh, if, if Metro Caring is as a representative community, we definitely saw folks who felt much more socially isolated and struggled with, with mental health challenges um, more as a result of that. Uh, and, um, and also those folks who really stepped up and just connected their schools, connected their buildings, um, went up and down the block. Uh, set up mutual aid organizations in their community. Those little fridges popped up all over our neighborhood. Uh, you know, for if you if you need something, come in and take it. And if you um, have extra, leave it here. And so I think you know, I think it was it was some of both. And I think that nothing is black and white. And and uh, I think there was a lot of creative ideas that came out of it and a lot of good connections. So uh, we we actually. Um did recently uh, interview an ESG consultant and they talked about the triple bottom line, you know, win, win, win. And that's people, planet and profit. So this is kind of a horrible question, uh, but it does, it does kind of align. Is there a way to align the solution to these social problems with a profit motive or, or is this something that we have to treat separately? It has to be a public investment. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that look, ESGs are are, are a good thing. Uh, I think it's it's better for businesses to be good community members and good global citizens than to than to not. Uh, you know, I personally invest in ESG. We invest Metro Caring's reserves into ESG funds, um, so I think those are good options for folks to be able to invest in values aligned funds, all of that. Uh, but I don't. I don't think that the business is going to solve the world's problems. Uh, I think that, you know, while it's it's good for businesses to be ethical citizens, and we need to ensure that businesses are paying, you know, livable wages, and that they're not trashing our planet or 
um, you know, oppressing people while meeting their missions, you know, I think those are inarguably good goals, right? And like, and, and I think that many businesses produce social good, but I just don't think we can stop there. I, I just think that um, this notion that billionaires are gonna save us is um, just <laughs> nonsense, frankly. I think uh, despite what they tell us, the billionaires are not the heroes in this story. And uh, you know, while philanthropy has been leveraged to do a lot of good in this world and, and is addressing a lot of critical problems, I think that uh, we need to actually have political solutions and economic solutions. And I think we need more transparency in our political systems. I think that the, the business lobby has, has too often been a force against equity, uh, fighting against things like paid family leave or sick time or health reform or increasing our minimum wage. And I think that they've too often stood in the way of, of workers' rights and sustainability in favor of like quarterly profit sheets. And I think the frankly, the, the system, you know, is largely a political system. And I think that uh, while corporations can, can uh, you know, do some good and while small businesses can innovate and tackle certain, certain aspects of this. I talked with somebody recently who's building modular housing that can be scaled up into buildings to create affordable housing much more cheaply. Like those kinds of innovations can come from the business sector and, and really help us and really add, add value. I just don't think we should, we should sit around waiting for, for the corporate world to save us. I think uh, we need to get engaged as citizens and we need to think about that frankly, the government is, is the only entity that can truly bring solutions to scale in a universal, consistent way. Um, you know, public education, our library system, our parks and rec, those are all examples of, you know, government doing good work. And yes, government can get bureaucratic sometimes. And yes, sometimes the regulatory framework is, is a real royal pain sometimes. But I also see that government can be a real force for good. And, and I named a couple of examples of where. And I think that frankly, you know, if you look around the world at the countries that have more equity, and less poverty, they're not relying on, on corporates to, corporations to solve it or businesses to solve it. They're, they're relying on government solutions, um, you know, guaranteed basic income or housing for all of their citizens or whatever it might be. There's a number of different ways to ensure that your citizens have healthcare and housing and, and food. And we are not doing great in the Northern, you know, Northern, uh, I mean, in North America, you know, whether it's Canada uh, where you are, Terry, where I think we're doing, a, you're doing a little bit better than us, but in the U S where we have, we, you know, when you look at us on any global indicator, we're not doing great. I think corporations are just not the solution there. I think we need to rely on, on policy and, and citizen engagement. Okay. Thank you. Because <laughs> um, I, I realized my next question you already answered in like the previous block. Um, do we have anything else, Jonathan? Or Yeah. So I could, I want to I pull on that one a little bit since, yeah. since we've already done it. And that's the, um, uh, you had said something or, or I, I don't know if this was the TED talk, but there's something that underlies everything. And there is this belief that poverty is just a function of reality. And there's just and I think you had said, maybe there's a previous conversation, but somewhere you had said that we need to change that belief. 
the belief that poverty is just always going to be here. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just a function of, of, you know, humanity existing. Poverty will always be there. Um, and I, I wonder if that's the first step uh, to really enabling the top down, the public investment that you're talking about is necessary. It sounds to me like, yeah, corporates are, cor- corporates are great. They do good stuff. They can't solve this and we shouldn't expect them to solve this. Um, um, we need to have massive public investment to make it happen. Uh, 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 but does, to make that happen, you have to change belief. People have to believe that that massive public investment will work before we commit it. Because we're talking, like we said, again, my great math skills, 60 million units. That's a lot of units to build in the United States. Um, <laughs> is that actually how many we need? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I just use, the, I use, I just use the, me, the metric that's the same as Sweden. So maybe not. Maybe it's 30 sure. million, but it's a lot of units, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How do we change the belief? Well, I mean, I guess I would, I would push back a little bit that we need to change, change belief before we change investments. I think that they can happen concurrently. Uh, what, 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 I, what I've seen when I've kind of traveled and, and seen other models of doing this um, is this continuous improvement mindset, which I think is missing from our framework here. Um, if you go to, for instance, I, I know people love to hold up the Nordic countries as an example, but I did spend some time there on a fellowship, um, you know, looking at how do they pull off the, the Scandinavian, um, you know, experiment. Uh, big, or not experiment, these, the Scandinavian model, like how do, they, how do they pull that off? You know, when you look at the Forbes list of best places to do business, you know, Denmark regularly makes the list and yet they have very low rates of poverty and the highest um, minimum wage when I was there, I don't know if that's still the case, but a few years ago when I was there, they had the highest real minimum wage, uh, you know, globally. And, um, you know, yes, their tax rates are really high uh, and, no one complains about it um, because they all say, oh, look, but we have the best roads and we have the best fire and we have the best school. Um, you know, I think that what I learned about their model though was less about like any particular policy framework or solution, but a mentality around continuous improvement. And I visited elementary schools and prisons and parole centers and academics and nonprofits and colleges, I visited, uh, you know, really virtually every kind of institution while I was there. And, and I would ask questions about how they got to where they got. And what I heard was this sense of, we tried a thing and then we saw how it worked. We looked at the data and then we said, oh, well that part worked, but this part didn't. Do we need to tweak it or do we need to find something else here? And they looked elsewhere for models and they would try a model from Canada or a model from you know, France, and they would see how it worked in their context, and then they would tweak it. And then each year, they would come back to it and and look at the data and improve. And it wasn't this sense of, um, you know, just this, this kind of framework we have in the US, it just seems to be really like, black and white, like, it's right, or it's wrong, it's left, or it's right, it's Republican, or it's Democrat, and you fight to the death. And if you win, you, you get what you get, and then the other side immediately starts trying to tear it down rather than like waiting to see like, well, what happens is, does the sky fall or actually do some things happen? And can we come back to it and tweet? And they do this thing called political week once a week throughout, like I think it's like seven or eight countries that do this thing where 
they basically bring together academics and social scientists and people from uh, you know, nonprofit and people from business and politicians from all of their various political parties. And sometimes that's seven parties or nine parties. And they all get together and they say, what are our biggest issues as a nation? And how can, what ideas do you have to address them? And they debate it and they hash it out. And, and then they come up with a policy framework and they try it for a year. And then they come back next year and they say, okay, well, how did that policy work? How, how you know, what went well, what didn't? And I think that um, that practice, that discipline of just doing evidence-based policy, of, of doing trying a thing, looking at the data, is, is changes mental models, right? And we can be more incrementalists and we can start, we can start a project, we can start a pilot and see what happens. And it's less of this like sense of like we have to like we have to get it right. This is our one chance or um, we have to convince everybody or we have to fight to the death. Let's just try a thing and then keep working at it and then keep working again. Yeah, it's what it's as if when things become sort of a, an ideological struggle as opposed to some kind of an evidence based like, look, everybody wants to solve this particular problem. Let's not be ideological about it. Let's actually see what works. And I mean, I know that's like one of my, you know, <laughs> one of my big frustrations with, with you know, what's our, the way our government does things locally, like in the, the part of Canada that I live in is I feel like they just, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not looking at the data because it's like, if you spend an hour on Google and you just research, like, what is, where is that policy going to take us? Well, this place tried it and this place tried it and this place tried it and didn't work. Why are we doing that? Like, it, it's exactly. not even an, an ideological question. It's just, that's actually not going to solve the problem. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> well, you know, and as a leader, that's how like I try to approach things, right? Like we try a program and we see what is the outcome and, you know, what do we need to change or what do we, you know, sometimes you need to let a thing go if it's not working. And I think that's how business approaches, business leaders approach their work, right? Like they try things and they innovate and then they look at the data. And uh, I don't, I, I think that that's the mentality we need to bring to governance is, is like you said, like less ideology and more problem solving. I, th I think that's our, I think that's our uh, snippet right there. Uh, that's, I think that's, <laughs> so we got our, we got our, you know, lead off snippet. That was great, Teva. Um, All right. I, just uh, before we close up, just could you tell people how to connect with you, learn more? I'm assuming there's other people in the industry that maybe you guys could learn from each other. And if we can, if they can connect through the podcast, that's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I welcome connections on, you know, LinkedIn or for people to just reach out and email me. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I take the time to, to usually write people back. It may not be right away because I'm often, I'm often swamped, but, but I will write people back. Um, you know, and I encourage the, the listeners to kind of do their own work, right? Like educate yourselves, uh, read. Um, I, I really liked uh, Heather McGee's Some of Us. I think that's a, a great uh, look at how racism um, has impacted our policy structure in the U.S. And, and what we, you know, some better thoughts on what we could do going forward. Um, you know, there for those uh, of your listeners who come from wealth, there's a great group called Resource Generation that helps folks look at their individual wealth story and to think about kind of what is their ethical um, obligation kind of within, uh, you know, that history. Um, you know, if you own, own your own business, like think about like your own business practices and you know, how much are you paying your lowest paid person? Um, what does your custodial contractor get paid? Is it livable? And, and to think about what you can do. And I know I poo-pooed 
ESG as the, as the solution, but I think it does need to be a part of the solution. Um, and I just encourage everybody to get involved as a citizen and as a neighbor and, and to learn to have conversations across difference. Um, practice that sonder and uh, be curious and empathetic. I think that the more we can engage with one another and be problem solvers, uh, the, the further we'll get. Um, there's a woman, Valerie Carr, who uh, wrote a great book and, and she asks in it, uh, is this the darkness of the womb or the darkness of the tomb? And uh, I think it's it's we that decide that. It's, it's how we go about our, our, our lives and our thinking and our engagement with one another. Thank you, Teva. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Teva. That was beautiful. Thank you guys. I appreciate it.